Good evening to you. Can you hear in the back? See? Okay. So tonight's talk is going to uh, be in honor of the perspective of our uh, brother or sister hawk that has arrived on the scene. I'm sure many of you have noticed uh, he or she hanging out on the top of the meditation hall or hanging out uh, perched uh, on the peak at Metta, looking down, taking the long view. So this is kind of a hawk's eye view of things. It's not a down-in-the-weeds practice talk. Uh, It's a little bit higher-level perspective on things, although I don't mean higher as in better or higher teachings, just um, a little bit more of an overview kind of way of looking at things. So if I was going to say uh, what impelled me to write this particular talk, I would have to say it has something to do with empowerment. Something to do with what I've come to understand to be the very real power that we have as human beings, both to shape our own minds and to shape the world. And uh, I can remember remember once having uh, a talk with an acquaintance, and they were they were talking about uh, the view of various uh, religious perspectives about um, you know what the end state or the end trait or the game end or whatever you want to call it was for each of the practices. And, you know, we're talking about various ideas of heaven or, you know, afterlife or, you know, you're dead in in the ground with, you know, dirt on your face and that's it. Or, you know, whatever the view was. And and she said, well, you know, what's the end? What's the end uh, in the Buddhist scheme of things, in the Buddhist view? And I said, well, from our perspective, uh, the only ending is a happy ending. But, you know, you really wouldn't know, know that sometimes, uh, given all the talk about samsara. You know, if you look at how the Buddha goes about uh, explaining things, the first thing that he does with the Four Noble Truths is he says, you know, there is the truth of suffering. It's like, oh... Couldn't we start someplace else? (laughs) You know, what a downer. It's like, you know, you start by saying, oh, you know, it's suffering. And then what do you have to do in relationship with suffering if you're doing this practice? Well, you know, you're supposed to, like, penetrate it and understand it completely. It's like, oh. (laughs) So, you know... That's just what we like to think about, you know, like more, more of what we already are trying to get away from. But there is a method to the whole thing. Because as you realize, if you consider the rest of the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha starts with suffering and goes on, you know, at some length about all the different kinds of suffering, you know, old age, sickness, and death, uh, um, having things happen that you don't want to have happen, have things not happen that you want to have happen, separation from what you love, you know, the loss of everything, the lack of control, all the rest of it. But he doesn't stop there. He basically, if you were uh, a grant writer or, uh, 
that kind of person, uh, you would say, okay, this is his problem statement right here at the beginning. He's like giving you all the problems, you know, that the rest of it is going to address. And the other three steps are basically, okay, I'm on board now that there's a problem. Okay, what are we going to do about it? What can we do about it? What's the remedy for this? How are we going to address it? How are we going to uh, move through it? How are we going to eliminate it? Uh, And if you're a grant writer, you know, then it would be, well, this is how much money we need, you know? (laughs) But in this case, it's this is how much uh, effort we need and in uh, this kind of way. And that's the the statement of the Four Noble Truths and the exposition of the Eightfold Path. So, you know, is Buddhism pessimistic? You know, if you start with that question, you could say, well, you know, all the stuff about suffering and suffering and knowing suffering and penetrating suffering, well, that sounds really kind of uh, pessimistic and gloomy. But there are three other steps, you know, So as I said earlier, the uh, only ending is a happy ending. So if we were going to uh, take a look at the Four Noble Truths in a nutshell and what the Buddha came to understand, uh, you would see that on the night of his enlightenment, What he really came to understand was how things are put together. How things arise, what causes what, and by implication how it can be undone. So, you know, he's talking about um, the night of his awakening. And he says, when my mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of the destruction of the taints. I directly knew as it actually is, this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering, I directly knew as it actually is, these are the taints, this is the origin of the taints, this is the cessation of the taints, this is the way leading to the cessation of the taints. So he figured out what was causing it, and he figured out how it could be undone. And so one of the ways I think about this is to think of it as... uh, Buddha was a student of suffering until he became a master of causation. So his key insight was really how suffering arose in the mind stream and how it could be released. And the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is all about that, complete with action steps for your consideration. So we could say that the path to awakening describes the transformation of understanding accompanied by and supported by a transformation of the individual mind stream. So by working with the grain of conditioned reality, with wisdom, we're able to affect our own escape from the limitations of conditioned things. And this is a very interesting point, which is there seems to be something of inherent potential in conditionality which can be harnessed if worked with to bring us right to the doorstep of the unconditioned. And if this weren't the case, then the Buddha could not have arisen from the world of samsara. And in fact, his awakening came through his close and intimate connection with samsara and his deep understanding of it. And nor was he the first Buddha. He talks uh, about 
So too, monks, I saw the ancient path, the ancient road traveled by the perfectly enlightened ones of the past. And what is the ancient path? That ancient road it is just this noble eightfold path that is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. I followed that path and by doing so have directly known aging and death, its origin, its cessation, and the way leading to its cessation. I have directly known birth, existence, clinging, craving, feeling, contact, the six sense bases, name and form, consciousness, volitional formations, their origin, their cessation, cessation, and the way leading to their cessation. And having directly known this, I have explained them. So he figured it out. But, you know, even though there's the the teaching that it's been figured out and that there is a path or a way for us forward, if we uh, follow his understanding and make it our own, nevertheless... Uh, the Buddhist perspective can seem awfully uh, pessimistic. So consider the five aggregates subject to clinging. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Five aggregates subject to clinging. So, you know, when you hear this particular teaching, you can feel kind of downcast. Uh, it can feel reductionist, and then you toss in the teachings on the three characteristics, you know, uh, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self, uh, can get to seeming kind of bleak. Um, it reminds me a little bit of a sign that I saw this weekend when I was at Point Reyes, and I was at uh, this place called North Beach. And there was a, a, a sign up there about, you know, swimming and wading, and it said something like, uh, shark area, severe undertow, sneaker waves, enjoy your swim. <laughs> you know? So, you know, you may be going to yourself regarding these teachings of uh, the five aggregates, you know, All I am, you know, is form and feeling and perception and volitional formations and consciousness, and even these are impermanent and, you know, dukkha, not self. You know, it's kind of a letdown, you know. But you have to understand that the Buddha approached all this in a very functional way. You know, what what kind of way of describing or uh, way of looking at this really... um, provides the tools for liberation of heart and mind to uh, arise and be used. And so, in relationship to the five aggregates, the Buddha is really pointing out their limitations because if clung to with self-identity in mind, we won't let go into an experiential understanding of our open nature. All right? So we, we keep hanging on to things as they presently present themselves or to the stream of things presently presenting itself. Or we desire things uh, to be uh, a certain way in the future, and in so doing, we miss the point and we miss opportunity. Because if we keep seeking or holding on to conditioned phenomenon, we don't see the field of liberation, which is the present all the time. And if we're unable to let go of clinging to things which we have, which have at best a short half-life of gratification, we're setting ourselves up for suffering and failure because all conditioned things are limited in their ability to create lasting happiness. So here's a really interesting uh, image that the Buddha uses when he's talking about the five aggregates. He says, suppose monks, a dog tied up on a leash was bound to a strong poster pillar. It would just keep on running and revolving around that same poster pillar. So too, the uninstructed worldling regards form as self, feeling as self, perception as self, volitional formations as self, 
consciousness as self, he just keeps running and revolving around form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. As he keeps on running and revolving around them, he is not freed from form, not freed from feeling, not freed from perception, not freed from volitional formations, not freed from consciousness. He is not freed from birth, aging, and death, not freed from sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection, and despair, not freed from suffering, I say. This suggests to me that part of what he's saying is that's, that's not what it is. You know, what you think you are, it's, it's not that. So if you're, if you're grabbing there, you're missing the point. He talks elsewhere about making a breakthrough. And this, this is in regard to understanding suffering. And he says, if anybody uh, would speak without having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of suffering as it really is, without having uh, made the breakthrough to the noble truth of the origin of suffering as it really is, without having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of the cessation of suffering as it really is, without having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering as it really is, someone says, I will make a complete end to suffering, this is impossible. He says it's like somebody saying, having made a basket of acacia leaves or of pine needles, I will bring water or a palm fruit. This would be impossible. So too, if anybody should speak thus, without having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of suffering, I will completely make an end to suffering. This is impossible. So he's really grounding it in, well, you have to understand what the problem is and why it, why it arises the way that it does in order to undo it. But he says, but if somebody says, uh, having made a basket of lotus leaves or kino leaves, I will bring water or palm fruit, this would be possible. So if anyone should say, having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of suffering as it really is, I will completely make an end to suffering, this is possible. So, you know, the path is about understanding. So the understanding of conditionality seems to really be the doorway, the opening into liberation. And he's pointing to the fact that the, our condition flow, our personal condition flow of experience is open-ended. And it can move us to liberation if it's wisely understood. And because of that, and because of the fact that everything is conditioned, including our bodies and minds, we have the power to move through wisdom, our arising experience in the direction of happiness, wisdom, and awakening by walking the Eightfold Path and learning how to use the fact of conditionality to our advantage. So this is obviously a different view of how to relate to things. And it's an engagement understanding what the process is both of what's going on in the creation of suffering and what the process is of its undoing. So its undoing is wise action. Now on the question of how do we exist actually, there's some interesting uh, hints at things as well. So when I was writing this, I I kind of had a memory of this old Bill Cosby album. Some of you middle-aged people may remember this. And it's titled something like, uh, Why Is There Air? (laughs) And there's something about that question, you know, why is there, there air? It's not like, how is there air or what is air? It's like, why is there air? 
that reminded me of this topic because um, when we consider uh, how we exist, uh, often we want to talk about what are we? You know, what are we? When really the question is more like, well, how are we? So there's a number of different ways to understand this. And the, the first uh, way, and this is the way that is uh, by far the most predominant in the world. Uh, for most people, uh, untrained worldlings, as the, the Buddha would call them, the question of what is the self doesn't arise very often because it's pretty clear what the self is. And it's so clear that there's really no need to try to define it. It's pretty obvious, you know, the self is the me, it's the I, it's the solid, centered in the body, it has firm boundaries. Uh, Things happen to the self and the self does things. And there is the self and then there's everything else. And the self is a kind of island, a rather besieged island. You know, me is who I am and it's going to be that way indefinitely, you know, preferably eternally. You know, if we could, like, make it last forever. Um, We might have a happy view of the self or we might have an unpleasant view of the self, but it's usually a fairly fixed view of the self. And the subjective experience of this is the self at the center of things uh, with things happening to us and in us. And it's kind of me against the world, me against everything else. And... With this, of course, there's a lot of grasping and defending of territory. And, you know, as long as we're in the center of things, we might as well exercise some influence, right? And so, uh, you know, we might as well try to get what we want or, um, you know, improve the island property a bit, you know, expand it, make it a little better looking, uh, kind of clean up the shrubbery, um, prevent erosion, you know, a seawall would be nice, and maybe pick up a few... uh, sand dunes along the way, and, you know, maybe invite a few select people onto it, onto the island, you know, at least part-time, so uh, that not too lonely. And an example of uh, somebody who was kind of thinking like this at one point um, was a, a young guy that I met uh, years ago, but I, I just remember this interaction because... Uh, it, it was just kind of like, wow, hmm. This guy was in, you know, an able-bodied, young, healthy, strapping guy, early 20s, mid-20s maybe. And uh, he, he was the, the brother of a friend of mine. And a good guy in a lot of ways. But uh, while he was visiting one day, he, he was talking about handicapped parking spots and how they really bugged him. It re- he really bugged him because it wasn't treating everybody the same. You know, it was like infringing on his right to park wherever he wanted. And if he was the first one there, then why shouldn't he be the first one to, you know, uh, take whatever spot he wanted? And if it was the closest one to the building, and you know, why sh- why shouldn't he have it? Okay, young, right? <laughs> young. But but it, that's the mentality of this, you know, fixed, separate self, right? And uh, I saw a great uh, bunk, a bumper sticker in Fairfax this weekend. Yeah. The town does have some good bumper stickers, I will say that for us. And, and it said something like this. It's one six billionth all about you. <laughs> So that was somebody who didn't quite approve of the view, right? (laughs) So then there's a second way that we can understand the self, or that we might tend to think that we exist or wish to exist. And this is a minority view, but it is somewhat popular in spiritual circles, so I'll mention it. And this is kind of the annihilationist view, which is uh, we don't exist at all, or we shouldn't, okay? And if there's a sense, self-sense we think there shouldn't be, uh, if we could disappear, we would, and we hope we can. Okay. 
right. So you know what I'm saying. But there's a third way to consider, which at least to me seems to be more what the Buddha is suggesting, which is this is not a view of the fixed self or of a non-existent self. Rather, in this understanding, there is individuality and there's relative identity. Okay, so to first to talk about individuality. And as I said, you know, the Buddha is into process descriptions, right? Because he believes everything observable is conditioned, right? So you would have to talk about it in motion or uh, in movement in some sort of way. Okay, so in this view... There is uniqueness of experience, meaning there are unique mind streams. All right. So the stream of experience which arises for me is not the same as that for you. So my mind stream is not yours. You'll probably be pleased to know. <laughs> And, you know, there's a realization that people, even people being in the same place, looking at the same thing, for example, experience different things. So there's a subjective difference in what is perceived, and there's a difference in the experience of it. I mean, sometimes we know this, but this is... We forget this all the time, right? Because we really do think, you know, there's like one, it's pretty clear what's going on, right? I, uh, there's a classic story of my, uh, my father, uh, who was a great guy in a lot of ways, but he had uh, specific uh, culinary ideas, Right? And so he used to, I can remember when I was a little kid, he, you know, we'd be eating at dinner or something, and he would, I don't know, apply something to some food on the plate, and he'd say, this is really good. This is really good. He'd say, try it. I'd say, oh, I don't want it. Oh, I don't want it. I don't like it. He'd say, no, it's really good. Try it. Go ahead, try it. He'd say, do like Dad do. Come on, try it. Do like Dad do. You know, and it would kind of like go on like this for a while. Okay. He didn't like get that five-year-olds don't like hot sauce on their potatoes. Okay. Because he liked hot sauce on his potatoes. And we do this all the time, right? So consider the window wars, right? Is it too hot? Is it too cold? Is it too hot? Is it too cold? Well, it depends on who you are, whether it's too hot or too cold, right? So we all have our individual Vedana in particular, and the way that we experience things through the sense doors is unique. We had actually a rather interesting uh, thing happen last year on this retreat when one of the teaching team wore a particular top, and it was new, and so it was like, oh, that's new. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's a beautiful blue. That's not blue. No, that's green. No, that's not green. That's gray. No, that's, you know, it's the same thing, right? Same top. You know, when I was at, on, at North Beach, um, you know, it's on the north side of Point Reyes, and uh, Sunday was kind of, uh, you know, it wasn't warm at least to me. So I'm out there, you know, I'm, I'm all layered up and I've got my raincoat on. And I'm, you know, on the beach, I'm watching the waves and having, you know, a nice, relaxing afternoon. And then I watch these kids, this family come up and they plop open a picnic blanket. And then there's like a, a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old out there, and they're running around with short sleeve shirts and flip-flops and no socks. And I'm going, ah. 
Okay, I was freezing. But unique experiences, right? Unique mind streams. And what our mind gravitates towards, what it inclines towards, is actually unique as well. So we have these different internal worlds with different conditioning. So we actually experience different things even when we are seemingly in the same situation. And we've all had conversations with, you know, friends, family members, uh, intimate partners, all the rest of it, where it's just unbelievable to us that they could be thinking of things and experiencing things the way that they are because they're so clearly wrong. (laughs) So even though our mind streams are distinct, however, there's a whole other piece to it which is they're not closed off. They're not hermetically sealed mind streams. So there is some kind of a commonality, some kind of overlap or interpenetration of things beyond our physical form. So in fact, you know, our connection is reflected in our dependency on each other. The Dalai Lama talks about this a lot. He talks about the essential goodness of human beings. And one of the things that he points to is he says, you know, human beings have a really long dependency period. I mean, really long dependency period. And it's getting longer all the time if you've got (laughs) college-age kids. But anyway, so, you know, he said, you know, if nobody had been there for us to care for us for many years, we would never have made it. And yet here we are. And there are other dependent states that we experience or we will experience, you know, old age, injury, illness. All of these will require the help and support and care of other people. And in most cases, there will be help and care and support, however imperfect it might be. So, you know, you're not me, but we're not completely separate either. And if we were completely separate, it would be impossible to have any kind of common language, empathy, compassion, connection, because there would be no exchange going on. But somehow we make ourselves known, however imperfectly, and we know others. We do communicate, even though it's imperfect. So when you think about ways we do this, there's language, there's gesture, there are actions. You know, we can even catch each other's states of mind sometimes, can't we? I mean, if a person were to come into this meditation hall who hasn't been here for the last month, they would feel like they were walking into a... You know? And would probably, you know, notice how busy their mind was and how restless they were and how... uh, bumping around they were and how rustly they were and all the rest of it. So there can be this sense of joint fields arising in situations. You know, we have similar desires. We all want to be happy. We all want to be well. Our specifics about how to go about that are very unique. But we understand each other by empathy, by some kind of resonance often, meaning something seemingly external, meaning your state, becomes an internal experience for me, which I can directly know. In fact, I know you in some way, I connect with you in some way, even though we're not touching. That's pretty... Amazing. And the Buddha actually talks about this when he talks about the development of mindfulness. He talks about developing mindfulness internally and externally, which seems to be a way of saying, looking at the foundation of mindfulness in a way that recognizes the experience of other human beings. And how is this possible? It's because although we're individual, we're not completely separate. Okay. So now on to the next thing about how we exist, which is another implication of 
the three characteristics, which is our openness to change, the openness of self. You know, once we realize that we're not a closed self, this walled kingdom, or a non-existent individuality, then we have to take a look at, well, so what's going on if it's neither one of those two things? And it seems to be that we're more like a system that's permeable, right? What is outside can come in, change what's going on. There's an exchange of information, energy, and activity with what is external to our core sense of self. So there's an interpenetration of things. And we're an open system affected by arisings initiated by external events and others. And we're capable of setting in motion through actions of body and mind things which will arise within us and within the experience of others. So it's a semi-permeable kind of thing. There's an osmosis back and forth across boundaries between individuals, and at the same time, there's a river of uniquely changing conditions that continue to flow through the individual uh, mind stream. And with this flexibility of boundaries, our mind streams are always changing, assimilating what we're ingesting, and manifesting that in some kind of way. You know, the Buddha talks about this in terms of... uh, When this arises, that arises. Or when this is present, that is present. You know, our actions of body, speech, and mind are always going out into the world and being ingested and assimilated by others in ways that are observable and in ways that are not. So I want to talk a little bit about this observability of things and non-observability of things because... To me, it's an important point. Now, one of the things that is talked about frequently and is emphasized in some of the the teaching that's done and some of the instruction and coaching that we do is the lack of control, the lack of control that you often experience in a sitting or in regard to what happens or sometimes even... uh, in terms of your ability to be open to something or present with something or not. And we're always pointing to that, you know, uh, desire that we have to control and the, the impossibility of control or the difficulty in control and all the rest of that. And one of the reasons for that, which you've heard before, is that There are many, many causes and conditions that are present in any arising experience. Somebody was uh, kidding around the other night and said, well, you know, to understand that, you'd have to go back to the Big Bang. So we provide only part of the conditions which are present with any experience, right? Right? We can sometimes provide the part that has to do with knowing, or sometimes there's the choosing, or sometimes there's the intention. But there's a lot of other stuff flowing in that are part of, part of the base, part, that are already in the, rest, already in the mixing bowl, right? Before we try to do anything with it. And that's why we so often feel that sense of, well, we can't control what's going on. Many, many causes and conditions. You know, when I was on the, the beach at North Beach, when I wasn't amazed at the children running around in the flip-flops, I was watching the waves come in. And it was very interesting to do this because, you know, as each wave came in, it was different, right? Each one was different. And I started thinking about, well, why, why would they be different? Well, there's a whole bunch of things. You know, there's the, 
direction of the wind and the uh, amount of the wind. There's the conditions at the bottom of the the, the the seabed there where it comes into shore. There's the waves that have already come in uh, uh, previously and the way they're washing back out. There's the, the shoreline itself and, you know, how it's uh, shaped and uh, how it's constituted. You know, each one of these waves, each one of these things was both coming out of many different conditions, but then it also became part of the conditions for all the rest of them that followed. So each one was uniquely shaped. I couldn't really say, you know, why each one was the way that it was, but there was a lot going into it. So there's a piece here, which is everything that we experience has so many uh, sources, so many causes and conditions that are not observable, not are, are not uh, directly traceable. And the flip side of that is Everything that we do, what we put out into the world, what we do, actions of body, speech, and mind, also are part of a web of causes and conditions that extend way out, way, way further than anything we will ever be able to directly observe. And this starts to go in in the direction of wise intention and the choice that we make about what we are cultivating and why we're doing it. You know, this individual stream, which we are, is open-ended, always changing, and can be intentionally directed towards the path to awakening and can be intentionally directed towards the path to awakening for the benefit of all beings, including those that we will never know and never see. So it makes a a difference what you do, a big difference. You know, we can feel ourselves to be like small and kind of, you know, insignificant, insubstantial. You know, we're one of the six billionth on this planet, and that's not even counting the animal friends. But we are connected to this flowing river of causation in ways we'll never be able to see or directly understand. I was uh, thinking about the first time, uh, one of the first times I ever came to Spirit Rock. And I came out through, uh, in, in a car with a friend of mine who's English. And as you know, we made the turn on to Sir Francis Drake. I was like, Sir Francis Drake, Sir Francis Drake, that sounds familiar. Then I thought, oh, high school history, Sir Francis Drake, it has, okay, English, English, voyages, voyages. And I said to my friend, I said, so, this is really interesting, you know, they named this road Sir Francis Drake. I wonder if that means Sir Francis Drake was ever out here. And he said, no, Sir Francis Drake was never here. So that didn't sound right to me. So I had to go online and check it out. (laughs) But really, why was uh, Sir Francis Drake here? You know, why, why is that the address of Spirit Rock? You know, if you were really looking for why he was here, you would probably have to go back at least to, uh, the Silk Road and the discovery of (laughs) spices coming from the Orient, right? But if you were looking to the effects of Sir Francis Drake being here and those who followed Sir Francis Drake, you would probably say, well, the fact that Sir Francis Drake was here has something to do with uh, um, the living conditions for people of color in Oakland. You know, it comes out of the deep past and it goes far, far into the future, these things. Small choices, small decisions about what we do, how we direct our life, have really large impacts. And the image that came to me when I was thinking about this, 
was that of a compass, you know, like an old-fashioned compass, like the round kind before they had GPS, the round kind, there's like a needle in the middle and, you know, it goes out to the outside and you kind of like turn around, you find north and then you figure it. Now consider the lessons from uh, high school geometry. At the middle of that compass, at the pin where the little needle is attached, right? If you, if you moved, you know, uh, 90 degrees right at that pin and measured the distance between those two points, it's a very small amount, right? A very small measurement, right? If you took that compass and you uh, extended those lines, those vectors, I believe they call them in geometry, and I'm in the Wayback Machine now, those vectors out for years and years and years, distance, 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 you would get a huge difference in the outcome, right? You'd get a huge gap between uh, where those points were. The angle, the 90 degrees would still be the same, but the measurement of the distance between those two points would grow and grow and grow and grow the longer those vectors are. And this is an important point for us in terms of setting our direction and why we're setting our direction and how that intersects with other beings. At the horizon, choices made now, which can be seemingly small and insignificant choices, can have really large effects, can really put us in very different places. can feed this river of change in very different ways. Much of what we're involved with is causing in the larger scale things which are never seen or ever directly known by us. And the the Hindus um, have an interesting image for this. You know, they call, they have something called the net of Indra, which is a way of talking about or pointing to the interrelationship of all causes and conditions. And they basically say, well, there's this infinite web of reality of things with an infinite number of points, and each one of them is connected to the totality, and each one of them reflects and contains in some sort of way, on some sort of scale, everything in the whole. So if we consider the implications of our interrelatedness and our contribution to the whole, we can see that, you know, our development and decisions we make about the line of our development, in other words, the way we set intention, are very important because our line of development and how that plays itself out is basically our ceiling for contribution to the larger world. So if we consider the bodhisattva intention and choosing which notes we want to sound in the world, which notes we want to play, we can allow that understanding to enter into our practice and generate the intention to take advantage of the open nature which is ours, to choose to continue to grow and development, develop in the direction of greater wisdom and compassion for the sake of the totality. So what we do will sound in ways that we'll never understand or know completely. And yet, can we trust that we can sound in this kind of way for our own benefit and that of others? So, with the power of the bell, clarity, intention, pitch, 
harmonic resonance. What's similar awakens similar. So may we open to the larger harmony, which is our interrelatedness, and remember the intention to practice for the benefit of all beings. Let's assimilate. May we all awaken for the benefit of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.